My friends, what a fabulous Friday this is turning out to be. I'm on Peter Alexander's boat on Long Island Sound, just off the coast of Greenwich. In fact, I'm looking over and I can see the uh, the shores of uh, Belhaven. Belhaven Club is off in the distance and over to, um, to my right is, um, yeah, that's Greenwich Harbor. And over to my left is Great Captain's Island. I can see the um, uh, the lighthouse over through the trees. It is a gorgeous, beautiful Friday afternoon, and I am so glad that you could join me today for the 19th of August 2022 episode of the Greenwich to Town for All Seasons show podcast. It's hosted by me. I'm Jeffrey Bingham a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, long known as the Gateway to New England. Well, on a beautiful day like this, i got to be honest, I'm really, really glad that you could, well, at least join us by podcast today. I'd love it if you could all come out with me um, here on the waters of uh, Long Island Sound on a beautiful Friday summer day. Now, Greenwich was was founded on July 18, 1640. Greenwich, Connecticut is one of America's most interesting and extraordinary communities. This weekly podcast show is dedicated to exploring and revealing the history of this notable and dynamic community. It's a special place that so many of us love and are honored to call home. Now, whether your roots go back nearly 400 years as mine do, or even 400 seconds, or, well, you know, somewhere in between or beyond, (laughs) whether you're here to stay or you're just passing through, well, we of Greenwich, Connecticut welcome you with open arms. And you're a part of our history, so I congratulate you. Now, the Greenwich at Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Mr. Peter F. Alexander. He's a landscape architect and principal of Site Design Associates. The Long Island Sound Institute, which is a special project of Site Design Associates, the Ambassador Museum of the United States of America, my good friend Mr. Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Coming up on today's show. Well, my friends, there's no denying it. The high and dry dog days of August are here in Greenwich, Connecticut. Now, out here on the placid waters of Long Island Sound near Great Captain's Island, we've got plenty of company nearby. Everybody's just in the spirit of celebration and relaxation. I want to thank uh, Peter Alexander for taking us out on his boat. And also, I'd like to thank Greenwich realtor James O'Brien for his company and also for treating us to shrimp sushi for lunch. Thanks a lot, Jim. We really appreciate that. Now, on last, last week's show, I welcomed Matt Bernard, the author of Victorian Summer, the historic houses of Belhaven Park, Greenwich, Connecticut. It's a fantastic book. Go out and get it please. Belhaven is is home of one of the first and most spectacular residence parks from America's Gilded Age. The New York Times called it, quote, the flower garden of Greenwich and indeed of the whole Connecticut shore, unquote. Now on today's show, you'll hear about the Bruce Cottages. They were the first homes constructed in Belhaven Park for Robert M. Bruce, who was one of Greenwich, Connecticut's most influential philanthropists. Now, quote, a feature of summer life in Greenwich, 
unquote, said the Greenwich Graphic in 1895, quote, is the annual ball of the Riverside Yacht Club. Here by the waterside on a summer's night are pleasures enjoyed that are not to be realized in the crowded drawing room of a city mansion or associated with social events of city life, unquote. You'll hear about that magical evening, and I'll let you know that you can have your experience at the Riverside Yacht Club next month uh, by um, attending the Greenwich Historical Society's annual meeting. It's going to be held there. Greenwich has long been a destination uh, by international visitors, and in August 1925, the ambassador from Argentina and his family paid a visit to Greenwich's Putnam Inn on West Putnam Avenue while on their way to Newport, Rhode Island, and they had a really nice time here. On Crimes and Misdemeanors, our weekly salute to the Greenwich Police Department as it continues to observe its 125th anniversary. Prohibition was in full swing in Greenwich in August 1920 when federal agents found many thousands of dollars worth of liquor and was hidden under the lo- under loads of cabbage and garlic. Well, imagine that. <laughs> Greenwich, Connecticut has been well known as a center of wealth since the latter years of the 19th century. It's true. The Greenwich News and Graphic reported on the 13th of August 1920 that there were those who thought such promotion was detrimental to the town's image. Well, the Greenwich Chamber of Commerce published a statement to this regard suggesting a different slogan, one that you've probably heard used quite often, even in the early years that we are in now of the 21st century. I'll share that with you. From the Judge's Corner, Judge Frederick Augustus Hubbard in March 1932 called the East Sandwich, misnamed for all of the Sandwich section of town. He was a bit uh, ticked off about that. He also talks in his column about the path of the Merritt Parkway or Merritt Highway, as it was known, and I'll have some other things that he opined about as well. The future of electricity in 1922 was a new technology impacting the people of Greenwich and the rest of the world. A story appeared uh, with some observations about this and uh, other things about new technologies, uh, and I'm going to share that with you too. Uh, Erwin Edwards, uh, columnist here in Greenwich, commented in June 1922 about the evolving history and changes in Greenwich over the previous 40 years, that would be dating back to, um, yes, I guess the uh, the 18, uh, 1880s. The landscape of Greenwich is dotted with the development of various types of planned communities. I bet you didn't know that, but it's true. In 1920, quote, a new little city, unquote, to be named Arbor Heath, was planned and announced to receive a to relieve rather a, a severe housing shortage for and it was going to be um, built at the uh, old Greenwich area at the intersection of East Putnam Avenue and Sound Beach Avenue. Well, what happened to it? I'll, I'll have some news about that. I'll have more about Discover Greenwich, creating a sense of place, celebrating the 90th year anniversary of the Greenwich Historical Society. I have news of exhibits, activities, and events for the public. My friends, out here floating on the placid waters of Long Island Sound, I wish you could all be out here with me, but we just don't have, it's not that big a boat and we just don't have that much room, so sorry. You've come to the right place to learn about the history of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, one of America's most interesting and extraordinary communities. My name is Jeffrey Bingham-Mead, your host, and I promise you we're going to have all this and a whole lot more as history continues to unfold. Stick around. Stay tuned.
We'll be right back after these important messages. Site Design Associates is an award-winning landscape architecture studio located in historic Greenwich, Connecticut and founded in 1979 by its principal, Peter F. Alexander, landscape architect. Committed to a unique multidisciplinary approach to professional landscape design and development, Site Design Associates' ambition is to foster a sense of excellence that is second to none from analysis to construction and maintenance with 35 years of experience, coupled with a sense of place, purpose, and history. Now, Peter F. Alexander is a member of the American Society of Landscape Architects. He's a graduate of the Rhode Island School of Design and a member of the American Planning Association. My friends, Peter F. Alexander and Site Design Associates is the title sponsor of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast, and we are very grateful for the support that we receive. You can learn more at sitedesignassociates.com. You can call Peter F. Alexander at 203-869-8632. Again, that's 203-869-8632. Or you can email him at peterA at sitedesignassociates.com. A special project of Site Design Associates and its principal landscape architect, Peter F. Alexander, the Greenwich, Connecticut-based Long Island Sound Institute consists of a community of professionals, researchers, academics, and concerned individuals progressively congruently working towards safeguarding Long Island Sound through research, historical perspective, and restoring ecological balance through management, policy, and education. The Long Island Sound Institute's aspiration is to promote modern planning and the implementation of the most up-to-date technologies available to conserve Long Island Sound for future generations. Long Island Sound Institute's studio is at 2 Greenwich Office Park West. To contact the Institute, email LISIHI2023 at gmail.com. That's L-I-S-I-H-I-2023 at gmail.com or call area code 203-869-8632. Again, that's 203-869-8632. There are many ways to serve our country. A select number of individuals are nominated to serve as U.S. ambassadors in countries around the world. Their diplomatic assignments are vital to the U.S. maintaining peaceful and working relationships with global governments. The Ambassador Museum, United States of America, is based in Greenwich, Connecticut. AMUSA is in the process of organizing and implementing a virtual Ambassador Museum. This facility will be a tribute not just to the ambassadors, but also their families, experiences, and the millions of lives that have been affected by them. Its goal is to correct a stereotypical idea that large donors are the people who are selected as ambassadors of the United States and the notion that some in the State Department make a career out of being an ambassador. To learn more about the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, go online to amusa.info. 
That's a uh, that's amusa.info. Call 203-347-4604. Or you can also write to P.O. Box 5002, Greenwich, Connecticut, 06831. Well, thank you, Kevin M.J. O'Connor, Vice President of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, knowledgeable in the complexities of the financial markets with a passion for servicing clients and their financial needs. My friends, learn more at jeffreymatthews.com or call Kevin M.J. O'Connor at his Greenwich office, telephone 203-485-7595. Again, that's Kevin M.J. O'Connor his Greenwich office at 203-485-7595. At the height of the Gilded Age, America's wealthiest families began to cluster in Newport, Southampton, Bar Harbor, and Tuxedo Park. In these idyllic locales, they built luxurious summer cottages away from the grit and grime of New York or Boston or Philadelphia. The Bellhaven Peninsula in Greenwich, Connecticut, is home to one of the first and most spectacular residence parks in the country. Its development occurred rapidly, and, in, and between 1884 and 1894, Bellhaven Park was transformed from scenic pasture land set above the glistening ribbon of Long Island Sound into a bastion of l- Victorian luxury. Successful American magazine described at Bellhaven of 1902 as, quote, a non-parallel spot, surpassing in beauty while equaling in elegance the pep of the fashionable world, Newport, and outshining tuxedo in brilliance and gaiety, unquote. The New York Times, meanwhile, called it, quote, the flower garden of Greenwich and indeed of the whole Connecticut shore. Victorian summer, the historic houses of Belhaven Park, Greenwich, Connecticut, focuses on the great flowering of Belhaven from 1884 to 1929. That is in the form of a book by a good friend of ours here by the name of Matt Bernard. You can find this at the Greenwich Historical Society Museum Shop. You can also find this available to you online at your favorite online book vendor. It's a fantastic book. And every other week from now on, on the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast, we're going to be featuring excerpts of Victorian summer, the historic houses of Bellhaven Park, Greenwich, Connecticut. So please, I urge you to go out and to, uh, to get this book. I got an email from Scotland of all all places. Wendy McFredden, thank you so much. Uh, she emailed me and said uh, after last week's show in which I had uh, Matt Bernard as um, as a guest, she said, oh, I'm definitely going to buy the book. So that, that, that came all the way from Scotland. So if someone in Scotland can uh, purchase this book, uh, you can too. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So um, again, uh, starting today, uh, we're going to be uh, featuring excerpts of Victorian summer, the historic houses of Bellhaven Park, Greenwich, Connecticut. And so I want you to sit back, relax, and just follow along. The Bruce Cottages were well known in the enclave that we know, of course, as Bellhaven, its principal owner was Robert M. Bruce, somebody that we also know quite well here in the town of Greenwich, Connecticut. The Bruce Cottages were built in 1884, and the address for two of them is 67 Mayo Avenue and 45 Bush Avenue. The architects were Fred B. White and E.G.W. Dietrich. 
Robert Moffitt Bruce, who lived from 1822 to 1909, is the best known of Greenwich's town fathers. Bruce Park, Bruce Place, and the Bruce Museum, which looks out over Greenwich Harbor and was once R.M. Bruce's home, are all named for this exceptionally generous cotton merchant. Descended from Robert the Bruce, the medieval Scottish warrior king, R.M. Bruce was a New York City native who maintained a winter townhouse on Madison Avenue. Little is known of Bruce's business life, but the fact that he profited handsomely during the Civil War indicates that his cotton trade went on uninterrupted, with the bonus of inflated prices, while other northern textile men fell on hard times. Working with southern plantations was not illegal, strictly speaking, despite a tight web of, quote, non-intercourse, unquote, laws. Indeed, Abraham Lincoln very quietly sanctioned bits of the cotton trade for certain approved dealers as part of a naughty political calculus. England and France might have felt compelled to abet the Confederacy had they been denied American cotton completely. Better to let Europe buy some cotton goods from northern mills as a sort of release valve, Lincoln reasoned, than none at all. A naval blockade of southern ports prevented Europe from dealing directly with the south, though British arms shipments did get through. General Ulysses Grant objected to the limited cotton trade, arguing that it prolonged the war by allowing the south funds to buy arms. Whatever the case... R.M. Bruce was among the few well-connected Northerners permitted to profit from cotton during the war, and his good fortune rebounded to Greenwich. In addition to giving the park and the museum, Bruce gave Greenwich a new Beaux-Arts town hall on Greenwich Avenue, now a senior and arts center, and contributed a lion's share toward the building of a new Greenwich hospital. Though a founder of the Belhaven Land Company, Bruce never lived in Belhaven. His Italianate Revival Mansion, now home of the much-expanded and renovated Bruce Museum, overlooking Greenwich Harbor on Steamboat Road. He did, however, build four investment cottages on Mayo Avenue, adjacent to Captain Mayo's lot, breaking ground on three of them in December 1884. The first house is constructed in the new residence park. The following summer, the Greenwich Graphic observed, quote, Mr. Bruce's three-odd, but very pretty cottages are nearly completed, unquote. The reporter was not altogether wrong to call them odd. All were done loosely in the Queen Anne style, but without the familiar Queen Anne embellishments. No turrets, no finials, no turned posts or stained glass. Broad triangular gables jettied out over bay and sash windows, second stories, and arcaded porches that extended over the entrance drive dominated the first stories. All four cottages seemed to have been painted white, another departure from Queen Anne orthodoxy. In 1884, Builder and Woodworker magazine published elevations and plans for a, quote, house at Greenwich, Connecticut, unquote. The plans as published are an exact duplication of the original cottage constructed at 67 Mayo Avenue. The architect of record was Fred B. White of New York. Within three years of his graduation from Princeton in 1880, with the benefit of his plans being placed in numerous design publications, White had built more than 200 homes and cottages and had another 50 under construction by 1886. 
when the 25-year-old died. The successor to White after his untimely death seems to have been his contemporary and possible friend and associate in New York, E.G.W. Dietrich, who lived from 1857 to 1924. Dietrich was also known for his suburban houses and churches. White and Dietrich shared many similar design aesthetics, and he would have been a natural to take over White's busy practice. In the late 1890s, through through the turn of the century, Dietrich would partner with Gustav Stickley, one of the early founders of the arts and crafts movement. They were early contributors uh, of their plans to the new concept of purchasing designs from plan books and later home design magazines such as Lady Homes Journal and Craftsman House, which they founded and published together. The remaining three Bruce Cottages were unlikely built and somewhat modified by these pre-built plans offered in these publications. With their strong, straightforward massing, were typical of White Dietrich's Auvers in, the, uh, in that they studiously avoided the Queen Anne style's flightier touches. Given early evidence of the movement toward the increasingly popular arts and crafts and aesthetic movement, even Dietrich's occasional turret seems more Romanesque than Queen Anne. Though Dietrich's Queen Anne's may seem less fun than others, they age remarkably well, particularly in lush garden settings that accentuate the cleanliness of the architect's designs. Two of the four Bruce cottages still exist, one on its original lot at 67 Mayo Avenue, and the other was moved one block north to 45 Bush Avenue in 1905, along with its handsome carriage house in order to enlarge the grounds and add a garage building to As You Like It. Of the remaining two lost cottages, another was moved to what is now 55 Bush Avenue for the expansion of the As You Like It gardens. It later burned down. The other was demolished along with Miss Kent's cottage on Mayo Avenue when a new colonial revival house was built on that site adjacent to the As You Like It garage complex at 51 Mayo Avenue in 1920. for a pleasant surprise at Coffee for Good. Located in the 1856 Solomon Mead Italianate-styled stone mansion at 48 Maple Avenue behind the Second Congregational Church, Coffee for Good has quickly emerged as one of Greenwich, Connecticut's top coffee houses. Its success is driven by a never-ending commitment to quality and inclusion. Coffee for Good shines as a unique nonprofit partnership between the Second Congregational Church and Abelis. It employs and trains people with disabilities through a self-sustaining platform so they can thrive in the community. The 1856 Solomon Mead House provides a 19th century style hip and unpretentious historical setting that evokes a setting filled with diverse people who are all inspired. Delightful staff, super-friendly baristas, great coffee, pastries, and more. Coffee for Good provides free Wi-Fi, free parking, indoor and outdoor seating, with a relaxed local vibe that has become a popular study spot and destination for informal business meetings and gatherings. My friends, take it from me. The word about this gem has gotten around. 
Located in the historic 1856 Solomon Mead Italianate-styled stone mansion at 48 Maple Avenue in Greenwich, behind the Second Congregational Church, all part of the Putnam Hill Historic District and listed on the National Register of Historic Places, Coffee for Good is open daily, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., except Sundays. You can learn more at coffeeforgood.org. Your next hire is just a coffee away. Hire a good employee. My friends, Coffee for Good in the historic Solomon Mead House at 48 Maple Avenue behind the Second Congregational Church is an on-the-job training platform with ABLIS for people with disabilities. Its graduates have the technical and professional skills to be employed in jobs in the hospitality, service, and retail industries. How does Coffee for Good benefit your business? Well, improve employee retention, increase customer loyalty, assistance with the job transition, on-site job coaches, federal tax credits, skills tailored to your business, and a diverse workforce. I encourage you to speak with Helen Lebrano and Alan Gunsberg, the employer's advisory team at employer at coffeeforgood.org. Again, that Helen Lebrano or Alan Gunsberg, the employer's advisory team at employer at coffeeforgood.org. My friends, learn more at coffeeforgood.org forward slash employers. Visit Coffee for Good and see them in action. Next month, the Greenwich Historical Society is going to be holding its annual meeting at the Riverside Yacht Club. Uh, And I happened to find uh, among my files a story from the early years of uh, the Gilded Age uh, here in Greenwich. Um, This is a story that is uh, dated from, uh, let's see, August 10th, 1895. Um, And it is about the annual ball that was held that year, 1895, uh, at the Riverside Yacht Club. So it must have been a lovely scene. This was published in the August 10th. 1895 edition of uh, the uh, Greenwich Graphic. So um, sit back and relax and uh, just uh, follow along. A feature of the summer life in Greenwich is the annual ball of the Riverside Yacht Club. Here, by the water's side, on a summer's night, are pleasures enjoyed that are not to be realized in the crowded drawing room of a city mansion or associated with social lives or social events of city life. The situation, the water, the view, the breeze, the opportunity for a quiet promenade outside the heated room all lend a charm to these events of yacht clubs whose handsome clubhouses are situated among rural surroundings and with yachts anchored nearby. The hop of the Riverside Yacht Club, given on Friday evening of last week, was the seventh of these memorable occasions and was as brilliant as any that have taken place in the beautiful clubhouse of this popular club. It was a beautiful night, just a little cool, perhaps, and 250 people enjoyed the pleasure of the dance or strolled upon or about the lawn or ground or sat upon the piazzas as suited their fancy. It was a brilliant gathering of people, 
and the costumes of the ladies were elegant, diamonds flashing their colors on every side. The harbor seemed full of yachts, and a pretty sight they made, illuminated and decorated for the occasion. The sound of oars and merry laughter coming from over the waves were evident of merry boatloads of visitors passing to and fro, from clubhouse to yacht and from yacht to clubhouse. A novelty had been planned by the committee in the way of decorations for the evening, and it was pronounced splendid. It struck everyone with surprise the representation was so perfect. It was the work of Mr. Edward Hanlon, one of the members. He had called in one of his scene painters, and with him the work was accomplished. It was a representation of the deck and sails of Commodore Tyson's yacht Nirvana, and the orchestra seemed to be upon it. On the wall at the end of the hall was painted the sails and masts of the yacht. The platform was arranged to represent the deck. On it were the cannon, the life buoys, and ropes and anchors taken from the yacht. In front was a railing similar to that of the vessel, and off at one side was a large picture of a Spianza launch with a sailor on it, coming from the yacht. The illusion was perfect. The other decorations of lamps, Chinese lanterns, flags and bunting, produced a startling effect. The committee had spared no pains in this direction. The supper was elaborate and was furnished by a well-known New York caterer. The orchestra furnished delightful music, and the dance hall was filled with a merry thong until the gray light told the coming of another day. You are listening to the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast hosted by Jeffrey Bingham Mead. That's me, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, long known as the gateway to New England. The Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Peter F. Alexander, Landscape Architect of Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum United States of America, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Thank you. The Greenwich Historical Society announces its 2022 annual meeting scheduled for Wednesday, September 14th, 5.45 to 8 p.m. at the Riverside Yacht Club. Charles M. Royce will be honored with the year's David Ogilvie Preservation Award for his lifetime work preserving and restoring landmark buildings. These include Deer Mountain Inn, Ocean House, Colonel Pendleton House, Avon Theatre, and United Theatre. The David Ogilvie Award was established in 2021 in memory of David F. Ogilvie. He was a former president and owner of David Ogilvie & Associates. Ogilvie was a leading force in Greenwich real estate for over 40 years. His numerous charitable interests include Greenwich, Connecticut's history, architecture, and landscape. A highlight of the evening 
Peter L. Malkin, a nationally renowned preservation leader, chairman of the Merritt Parkway Conservancy and honorary trustee of the Greenwich Historical Society, will interview Charles Royce in a fireside chat about his preservation projects. RSVP, please, by September 1st, 2022. Presenting sponsor is Charles Hilton Architects. Tickets available online at GreenwichHistory.org or call 203-869-6899, extension 14. One of our supporting sponsors of the Greenwich A Town for All Season show podcast is the Ambassador Museum of the United States of America. And in light of that, I found this story published in the Greenwich News and Graphic from August 14, 1925. It is about a visit by the ambassador at that time of Argentina who stopped in Greenwich. So, um, I, I have to preface this by one thing. The name of the ambassador is kind of hard for me to, um, uh, to pronounce, and so I'm going to give it a try, but I'm going to spell this for you from the story. His name is Honario Peredon. I think that's how you pronounce it. His last name is spelled P U E. Y, R R, E D O N. I don't know how you pronounce that, but if you happen to run into me anywhere, maybe Coffee for Good or someplace, if you want to share that with me, um, please do. <laughs> anyway, let's get on with the story. Again, this is from the Greenwich News and Graphic, um, August 14, uh, 1925, and it's about um, a visit to Greenwich um, at that time by the ambassador of Argentina and his family. Uh, they stopped at uh, the Putnam Inn, uh, and uh, they were on their way to um, to Newport, Rhode Island, of course. So the story goes as follows. Honario Puerredon, I hope I got that right, Argentine ambassador from the embassy in Washington, D.C., with his family, had dinner at the Putnam Inn, West Putnam Avenue here, of which Joseph Miller is the proprietor on Wednesday afternoon. The ambassador was accompanied by his wife and four attractive daughters, Julia, Helena, Raquel, Angelica, and Martha, and also his son, Richard. The party left Washington in two cars, stopping at the Ritz-Carlton and then continuing on to Connecticut en route for Newport, Rhode Island, where they will spend several days. The ambassador a man of fine physique and striking appearance, when interviewed by a reporter, was most gracious in his manner. He expressed himself as being very fond of this country and said he was working to intensify the best relations between the United States and the Argentine Republic. Quote, Do you know, he exclaimed, why I like to travel by automobile through Connecticut? It is because you have such wonderful highways, and the same might be said of nearly all roads throughout America. Unquote. The ambassador was also pleased with Greenwich and its environments, and was so delighted with the service at the Putnam Inn that he has made arrangements with Mr. Miller to stop here on his way back from Newport. Now, I want to conclude here by, by saying uh, to everyone, again, this is um, a story from 1925, 
uh, the summer, August of, um, of that year. And um, one of the things that uh, I wanted to remind people, especially those of you who are fairly new to, um, to Greenwich and uh, the area, uh, is that um, roads such as uh, the Connecticut Turnpike, I-95, and the Merritt Parkway did not exist. <laughs> so um, by what route uh, were they going by car? Well, um, that would be uh, US-1, which we know in Greenwich as East Putnam Avenue and West Putnam Avenue. Um, and if you can picture that going through Westchester to New York City and then uh, eastward through Stamford and Darien and Norwalk and, um, and on along the, um, uh, the, the coast of Connecticut, uh, to um, uh, to the state line with Rhode Island and on to uh, Newport, um, that would have taken an enormous amount of time. Um, and with uh, so many people in the two cars, well, uh, it must have been uh, quite a uh, quite a journey. You had to have a lot of patience in those days. Something that we are probably, um, comparatively speaking, in short supply. So um, it's something to uh, to think about. Well, my friends, it's time for crimes and misdemeanors. It is that portion of the show in which we pause to uh, honor uh, the uh, ongoing uh, commemorations of the 125th anniversary of the founding of the Greenwich Police Department. And so um, it is during the segment that we highlight historical crimes um, that have taken place. Not everything was genteel and uh, civilized in, in Greenwich, no more than anywhere else, I suppose. Um, I have two stories, um, uh, or two crime stories uh, from the same edition of uh, Greenwich News and Graphic, and this is from um, August 13, 1920, the first uh, of these that uh, I will share with you is, and by the way, this is from uh, the period of our history of uh, associated with uh, prohibition, um, you know, of course, alcoholic beverages were uh, not allowed. So um, we have this, loads of booze camouflaged, many cases of liquor hidden under cabbage and garlic. <laughs> this is on the first page. So of the many methods adopted by booze runners in conveying liquor over the Boston Post Road and through the outlying sections, the latter route to evade the notice of federal agents. The most unique camouflage was discovered by federal agent McCarthy and his men Monday morning about three o'clock when three heavily loaded motor trucks proceeding from New York, New York to Bridgeport up Colonel Thomas Meade's Hill west of Greenwich were found to contain thousands of dollars worth of liquor, but the booze was entirely hidden from view. By the way, um, uh, to cut in here, Colonel Thomas Meade's hill would be that hill um, over toward where the uh, the Greenwich Library is today. The um, uh, the Thomas Meade house was originally located, as some of you may know, on um, uh, the site of what is the um, main branch of the Greenwich Library. It was uh, moved around the corner um, uh, in um, in 1929, I think it was. Um, so the the house was still there, but. Um, but the, the hill, of course, was known as Count Thomas Meade's Hill. So just, a, you know, a sideline there. All right, let's get on with the story. In one of the trucks were some 25, 75 heads of cabbage, which surrounded the cases of whiskey, while the second one had numerous boxes of garlic about the cases of liquor, several strings of the Italian luxury being suspended from the sides of the truck. In the third truck, there was a considerable number of what appeared to be phonograph cases, but which in reality are said to have been filled with bottles of whiskey. 
The, the nine men aboard the trucks were placed under arrest and spent the night in cells of the Greenwich lockup adjoining five other alleged booze runners who were arrested the previous day when three other trucks loaded with liquor were apprehended by federal agents. The three trucks which were lined up in the rear of the police station Wednesday morning attracted much attention. It is said that the liquor seized in the six trucks with, uh, within two days was valued at over $75,000. Hmm, in those days, that must have been quite a bit of, um, of money. Again, that's $19.20. Greenwich has been known as a very wealthy community uh, for a very long time. Um, since the 19th century, that has been uh, the case, and we have other affirmation of this. This comes from the Greenwich News and Graphic, on Friday, August 13, 1920. Um, and the headline of this is the, quote, richest town, unquote. Uh, unquote. Um, the, and it says here, the slogan that may work injury to Greenwich. Well, this is interesting. And this is a, a reprint of a statement, apparently, that was um, put out by, at the time, of the Greenwich Chamber of Commerce. So it attracted my attention. Let me share this with you. <clears throat> from the Greenwich Chamber of Commerce, quote, there are many good citizens who believe that the practice of spreading broadcast, the boastful statement that Greenwich is, quote, the richest town in America, unquote, and similar claims works real harm to the present and future of the community. Within the past fortnight, the chamber received a communication from a distinguished resident uh, depreciating this practice. He called attention particularly to the wording of a signboard on the post road. The objectionable phrase in this instance was, quote, the richest countryside in America, unquote. Why drive people away, he wrote, by telling them that only the rich live here? Hmm. The chamber transmitted a copy of this communication of complaint to Ladd and Nichols Incorporated. I think we've heard of them. One of our valued members who were the advertisers in question. This brought the following reply for which the concern merits the thanks of the chamber. Quote, the words richest countryside used in the sign referred to in your kind communication of July 31st were employed as reference as referring to the land itself, not the people. Quote, we mean to indicate that our countryside was rich in the connotative sense of that word. And the only way a countryside could be rich would be in possessing a wealth of forests, valleys, brooks, hills, distant views, etc. Quote, we ordered the sign changed, however, some weeks ago because we share your opinion that the phrase richest countryside is subject to being misunderstood. Quote, Permit us to thank and congratulate you in this connection with your interest in public spirit and to assure you in turn of our responsive desire of cooperation with that spirit, unquote. Quote, Mr. Morton C. Nichols of Lead and Nichols Incorporated, who made this reply to the chamber, has since informed us that the new sign will read Greenwich, the gateway to New England. This is most appropriate. Greenwich is the gateway to New England, the magnificent, unquote. Now, I have to tell you, as I close this, is that it's very interesting. You know, that in the um, uh, the opening of uh, these shows, and for many years, 
um, uh, in general, Greenwich, Connecticut has been referred to as uh, the Gateway New England, uh, Gateway to New England. And uh, uh, to be very honest with you, I always wondered <laughs> when that started. And it seems to me, uh, at least in my research so far, that this probably was when that started. So, my friends, when you hear about Greenwich, the gate or Greenwich, Connecticut, the gateway to New England, um, it looks like we might have some documentation of that as uh, starting uh, from the firm of Aladdin Nichols through the Greenwich Chamber of Commerce and published in the Greenwich News and Graphic on Friday, August 13th, 1920. It's easy to see why the Greenwich Historical Society's Tavern Garden Markets have been wowing shoppers this summer. In a class by itself, the Tavern Garden Markets feature a specially curated and alternating selection of locally grown and sourced products. Support local growers, producers, and artisans when you fill your basket and your home with the bounties of native and unique handcrafted goods. Enjoy farm-to-table organic produce, fresh eggs, plants, and flowers. Savor the flavors of nutritious prepared foods, fresh-baked breads, fruit pies, and donuts. Find the perfect gift among an array of vintage silver, jewelry, stationery, ceramics, and accessories. Mark your calendars for Wednesday, August 10th and August 24th. 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. But you know what? Here's a secret. Shh! Early birds are welcomed at 9.30. Tavern Garden Markets are held in the lobby and Tavern Gardens at the Greenwich Historical Society's Bush Holly House Campus at 47 Strickland Road. Free parking. Tavern Garden Markets are sponsored by Yashmin Lloyds and Compass. Well, prolific and gifted and well-known <laughs> to so many of us here even in the 21st century by this time. Judge Frederick Augustus Hubbard, he was a, he was a lawyer, a writer, a gifted storyteller. His, his was a remarkable life. And um, with the talents that he had, he was able to record those um, in a newspaper column uh, that um, was called The Judge's Corner. He wrote under the pseudonym uh, or pen name, as it would be called, Ezekiel Lemondale, and he loved to call what uh, call all of this cracker barrel stuff. He lived in the late years of the 19th century and into the first third of the 20th century of Greenwich, Connecticut. Now, lo and behold, we have a wonderful um, friend of ours that, uh, who, of course, was doctor, or <laughs> he wasn't a doctor. Uh, we are indebted to Frank Nicholson, uh, who collected Judge Hubbard's uh, articles, publishing them in compendium form as Greenwich History, The Judge's Corner, 150 Vintage Newspaper Columns by Frederick A. Hubbard. They were selected, edited, and indexed by Frank Nicholson. And the column that I have for uh, you on today's show is column number 132, uh, dated March 24, 1932. And the headline, the name East Stanwich is wrongfully applied to Stanwich. The Merritt Highway route through Greenwich. Mansion House, once a popular name for a hotel here. So, let's get started, shall we? There is probably no instance in New England except in Greenwich where the name of a village has been changed without public authority. The name of Stanwich has, within the last 25 years, been nicknamed East Stanwich, much to the disgust of the natives of that ancient burg and no one is able to account for this mysterious change. Uh, 
Sandwich has a history going back to colonial times. It was one of the important villages of the town. The Greenwich and Ridgefield Turnpike Company made it the final stop after leaving Bedford and before reaching the terminal in Greenwich. The village inn still stands, a memorial of stagecoach days. Stanwich represents the center, at least in population, of a territorial division of the town called Stanwich School District. Before the consolidation of the districts, it maintained, uh, it, it maintained by local tax and town appropriation a public school. The schoolhouse stood nearly opposite the church. A new one took the place of the old one some 25 years ago by the generosity of E.C. Converse. A church was there as early as 1731, but the one destroyed by fire, August 22nd, 1923, was built in 1804. It had its village post office except for a short period when it was moved across to the Bedford Road, called in the old records West Street, and the post office remained in Stanwich until displaced by rural free delivery. In Spencer P. Mead's History, published in 1911, we find no mention of East Stanwich, but Stanwich appears several times, for example, in Other Days in Greenwich, published in 1913, the fever of change had apparently been contracted. On page 67 of that volume, it states, quote, The old records give the name of Stanwich to all that territory below Banksville, extending east as far as the, the farms in Stamford Township. There seems to be no reason for applying the name East Stanwich to what is now and always has been the center of Stanwich. The change adds no beauty to the name, but still it sticks. The newspapers in Greenwich and neighboring places told recently of a fire on the corner of North Street and East Stanwich Road. This was an implication that the, that the village of East Stanwich exists the name is so fixed that it will always stand for that delight and for that delightful old village of Sandwich, and no one can tell the reason why. The route of the Merritt Highway is not altogether satisfactory, and there is talk of an application for an injunction. It is, it is charged that private interests have been considered at the expense of utility and economy. The pressure on Mr. MacDonald to adopt the northern route has been very strong, and it is the belief, the general belief, sorry, that, that he really considered the southern route the better one. Of course, the Superior Court has jurisdiction, but whether any individual will go to the expense of enjoining is doubtful. A New York lady who is familiar with Greenwich and its people writes that she enjoyed the story of the Kent House and suggests that we write about the Mansion House. That name for a hotel seems to have been very popular in Greenwich. In the days of the Civil War, Mrs. William Elliot, the successor of Augustus Lyon, called her, her, her hotel by that name. It stood where the Pickwick Arms is uh, located, the southeast corner of East Putnam and Greenwich Avenue. The other mansion house to which our correspondent refers came many years later and was identical with what is now called the Green Court Inn, replaced by the Greenwich Boys and Girls Club. George Foote was the husband of Charlotte C., the daughter of Thaddeus Sillick. 
For a time, Mr. Foote was interested in the Silic House, but in the early 80s, he hired of Amelia J. Dugan the Davis Homestead, which he, he named, quote-unquote, the mansion. For those early days, the lease does not appear to record, but later we find a lease for three years from September 1, 1891, at $100 a month. Mr. Foote made it a very popular house, and he had an excellent class of guests, and some of them, like the McCord family, became permanent residents and landowners of the town. Our correspondent writes as follows, quote, Mr. Foote made it very pleasant for his guests. Every Saturday night he gave a cotillion in which such young men attended from outside as Will Terrett, Richard Outwater, Dr. Dawson, and Burton Hart. Also, Charles Geddes and his wife were guests of the hotel. Pool tournaments were one of the amusements, unquote. In 1892, while Mr. Foote's lease was still in force, the railroad line was changed to a point 200 feet nearer the house. This ruined the place for a summer hotel. Later, it became one for a boarding house kept by, uh, by oh yes, by one, by one Green and named him the Green Court Inn. In settling with Mrs. Dugan for damages, the railroad company concluded that the purchase of about six acres for $30,000 was the easiest way out. At that time, it was generally thought that the station was to be located there and that it is a future possibility, is still entertained by many. The purchase of the railroad company included land bounded on all sides by highways and admitted to be an ideal location for a terminal of the Westchester and Boston Railroad after it is extended from Portchester to Greenwich. However, this spot has an interesting history. In the 18th century, the property with many contiguous acres belonged to William Bush. He came to Greenwich from New York about 1750. He was a young man of wealth, the only son of a retired shipping merchant. It is said that his scruples, or excuse me, his show buckles, I'm sorry, were of the finest wrought silver, and his small clothes were the choicest silk. He had the swiftest for horses, the finest oxen, and the greatest herd of sheep. The house he built on the subsequent site of the hotel was a lean-to farmhouse, which remained there until 1869. William Bush died eight, January 8, 1802, possessed of a large estate, including land running as far north as the Post Road. It was this land that the ever-constituted uh, home farm of Abraham, Abraham yeah, Davis. I'm sorry. He was commonly called Benson Davis. He was a native of the town, his birthplace being at Davis Landing, where the old tide mill was operated for many years. The family was large with some interesting members. Two sisters, Mrs. Benson and Mrs. Spader, will be remembered by most of our elderly readers. The head of the family was the elder brother, Silas. The rest of the flock, after the death of their father, looked to him for advice and guidance. Silas Davis was a very able and handsome man. He went to New York early in life and eventually became the head of his firm with a, with a nephew. 
Silas D. Benson, as a partner under the firm of a firm name of Davis and Benson. There were they were flower merchants. Brother Benson was entirely outclassed by Silas, but the latter gave him a job in the business which he retained for life. In he died on February fourth, eighteen seventy nine, possessed by the uh, by the uh, possessed by the old bush farm which went to his wife Eleanor, and upon her death to Amelia J. Dugan. In 1869, Benson Davis had become rich from the flower business. He desired a better home than was afforded by the colonial farm that Bush had built before 1800. It doubtless was very satisfactory to Benson, although he had no special fondness for antiques. And that was a beautiful one. But his wife aspired for something up to date. She was in no sense a society woman, although she had many diamonds. And later, after she, and later, after the new house was finished, she called what the boys of the period called, quote-unquote, a big blowout, unquote. Benson was an indulgent husband, some said under compulsion, but he met his wife's wishes in good shape. He hired Samuel Adams of Adams Four Corners, as the spot was then called, to build him the house that later would be the mansion house. Davis paid $2,000 for supervision, but what the construction cost was never known. Davis paid $2,000 for supervision, but what the construction cost was was not known. It was a big house for two people, often visited by brother Silas and his beautiful and accomplished daughter, who later became the wife of William M. Tweed also, and he was he was a very good mother, and she was a very good mother, still remembered by many of our readers as she grew gracefully old in her Stamford home, and that's signed by Frederick A. Hubbard. Patty Silkman is a recently retired Greenwich Public School teacher who taught math and science at Central Middle School for 38 years. Currently, Patty is a storyteller at Greenwich's Byram Schubert Library. The Greenwich Historical Society invites you to enjoy summer story time for preschool children. Join us for stories and music in the gallery and garden. Wednesdays 11 to 11.30 a.m., July 13 through September 28th. Reservations requested but not required. Learn more at GreenwichHistory.org or call 203-869-6899. Presented by the First Bank of Greenwich and supported by Waterstone on High Ridge, Music on the Great Lawn has been entertaining audiences weekly in the heart of Greenwich Historical Society's campus at 47 Rick Strickland Road. Summer is sizzling. Pack your picnic and enjoy an evening of live music in Bush Holly's exquisite historic gardens. Mark your calendars for Thursday, August 11th, when the Bob Button Band is set to perform. On Thursday, August 25th, get ready for Gunsmoke. Space is limited. Advanced registration is recommended. Members, $10. Non-members, $20. Become a Greenwich Historical Society member and receive special rates. My friends, don't put this off any further. 
The Great Lawn at Bush Holly House opens 5.30 p.m., concert 6.30 p.m. to 8 p.m. Parking is free. Learn more at GreenwichHistory.org or call 203-869-6899. A century ago, electricity was a rather novel thing to, I think, the vast majority of Americans. Uh, that includes, of course, people here in Greenwich. This is a story that appeared on July 28th of that year, 1922, in the Greenwich News and Graphic. It quotes a story from the Boston Transcript. I thought maybe I would just share it with you. It's kind of interesting. What the future has in store for us is hard to tell, the story goes. It would be interesting, however, to look ahead and dream. We sometimes think that we have reached the stopping point, but sooner or later new ideas creep in to change entirely our standard of living and our ideas. Undoubtedly, science is serving us today in a greater way than ever before. Refinements will come in to bring, for instance, to those who are traveling on the earth or in the air, the power of communication, such, there, uh, such that there will be no difficulty whatever in requesting the porter of a moving train to call Mr. So-and-so, whose city that instant you are approaching, at the rate of 80 miles an hour. Again, it may be decided to take, uh, it may be uh, decided to take an aeroplane and go to some far-off land for a pleasant sojourn. Gasoline will have been a thing of the past, and our power will be got from the pent-up source in an atom. At that time, our precious stones will no longer be mounted on gold, for ambitious chemists will have taken the lead, and by a slight change will have converted it into what is now rare metal. With that change, our coinage system will have been altered. Business transactions will be made almost universally by speaking through a private radio line to a dealer 12,000 miles away. Electricity will then no longer be a source of mystery and astonishment, but it will be the very means upon which the existence of all people will depend. Well, my friends, that's something to think about. Just over 100 years ago, in June 1922, Erwin Edwards published a column uh, in the Greenwich News and Graphic uh, under his um, uh, Greenwich Life uh, As It Is and Was uh, column. Um, and um, he wrote about um, what uh, Greenwich was like four decades before that period, which would be, uh, what about um, 1880, and then reflected on uh, the changes that had evolved in the town during that period. Um, and so, um, you know, of course, we're, we, we do that all the time. We see uh, Greenwich uh, changing in uh, ways that, uh, that we like, and maybe sometimes uh, some ways that we don't. Um, but in any case, uh, they are uh, a part of history. And so I thought that maybe I would share uh, with, uh, with you what uh, Mr. Edwards wrote uh, back in uh, June of uh, 1922. So sit back, relax, and just uh, follow along. Four decades ago and today. Now, Forty years ago, in the printed descriptions of Greenwich, the statements were made that the principal industries of the town were agriculture, manufacturing, and oystering. There were, on, there were only one or two estates in town then. The most pretentious was Millbank, 
which was developed by W.M. Tweed, consisting of 55 acres, which forms the extensive estate of which there are so many notable ones of today. About this time of the year, farmers began to get ready to ship their produce by the several market boats running to New York from different parts of the town. So far as manufacturing was concerned, there was more carried than on than strangers realized on visiting Greenwich. One of the first telephone factories in this country was located at Dumpling Pond and established by the Palmer brothers. They employed a large number of men. Palmer and Duff's shipyard was a hive of industry. Josiah Wilcox had a large carriage hardware factory at Riversville. Tinga House and Company conducted the Glenville Woolen Mills. At Pemberwick, Russell, Birdsell, and Ward had a nut and bolt factory, where a large force of men was employed. At East Portchester, there were several factories, with the exception of the telephone factory at Palmer Brothers at Dumpling Pond and the Wilcox factory at Riversville. The others are all in operation at the present time, and several new ones have come into the business life of the town. But probably the most important and famous industry of the town at that time was the oyster business, in which a large number of Greenwich men were engaged. The finest oysters in those days came from off Greenwich in the Sound. All over New York in the restaurants, signs were displayed reading East River Oysters, the most of them coming from the waters of the Sound in this vicinity. At this season of the year, the Sound was dotted with oystermen sloops, oysters being taken from the natural beds and planted on the private grounds of the oystermen. So extensive did the business grow that the State Shell and Fish Commission made frequent visits to Greenwich to settle disputes over boundary lines. There were quite a number of private beds, the State giving a grant of two acres to any citizen who would plant oysters there. The Lockwood brothers went into the business very extensively and owned a steamboat, which they used for planting and dredging. It was the first and only steamboat engaged It was the first and only steamboat engaged in the business by Greenwich oyster growers and was said to be one of the first used for such purpose in the state waters. It was sold to Norwalk dealers then the Lockwoods retired from the business. The industry is not as extensive as it used to be. In fact, it is the same way all along the Sound. The oyster saloons, of which there were so many years ago in the towns, cities, and villages of New England, are all gone now, due to changing conditions and the fads and fancies of the times. Greenwich is becoming more and more a great social center, and all this has come about in the past 40 years. It's many clubs and organizations making it so. There was recently come into life two golf clubs or country clubs, making four in all. The Dingletown Country Club, to those who know Greenwich of years ago, it is a historical locality, the quaintness and oddity of its name suggesting that, it, that such must be the case. At Round Hill, there has been recently organized another club, 
These two, with the Fairfield Country Club and the Field Club, make four in all. And then there is the Indian Harbor Yacht Club, the Bellhaven Club, and one at Riverside and Sound Beach. There are few, if any, towns of the size of Greenwich that have so many social organizations of that character. The business life of Greenwich was changed recently in the past 40 years, and it is not the factories that have been the principal factor in inaugurating such change, but it might be said to be due, in large measure, to its becoming a fashionable residential town. Banks, really, more than anything else, are evidence of business growth. Forty years ago, there was but one, and that a small, savings bank, and now there are three, and it is said that one will soon be opened in that bustling community, Sound Beach. The recent great jump in the value of property along Greenwich Avenue is strong evidence of how business is increasing and how Greenwich has changed and is changing. Discover Greenwich, Creating a Sense of Place is a fantastic new program by the Greenwich Historical Society celebrating its 90th anniversary. Well, how about that? Now, you're invited to savor Greenwich's summer breezes with August's Picnic in the Park series. Join us in a celebration of summer as we feature Greenwich's beautiful and historic parks. Mark your calendars and these locations. Are you ready? Sunday, August 14, Bruce Park. Sunday, August 21st, Montgomery Pinedom. And Sunday, August 28th, Binney Park. Get comfortable, meet old friends and new ones as we connect and strengthen our ties to each other and a special place we call home in Greenwich's picturesque parks. Now, for details and to order your picnic, visit GreenwichHistory.org forward slash discover dash Greenwich. Uh, you know, f- since, um, well, since the 19th century, uh, the landscape of Greenwich, Connecticut has been dotted with uh, residential uh, communities that have been developed. Of course, um, Belhaven is one of the uh, well-known ones associated with the uh, Gilded Age, but there have been other developments at all th- uh, that, that have been built and some that were not uh, but publicized as being so, anyway, at least at the time. One of these um, is one that was located apparently over in uh, the old Greenwich area. And I thought that I would share this with you and maybe ask for your help. I'm, I'm trying to find out more about this. Um, and it was a development called Arbor Heath. Uh, and that would be uh, A-R-B-O-R. H-E-A-T-H. Just follow along with the story. This is from the Greenwich News and Graphic, August 13, 1920, and it was on page 12 of uh, that edition. The headline is, A New Little City, Colony of Fine Homes to Relieve Housing Shortage. All right, so the first group of houses has just been completed at Arbor Heath, the property at the corner of the Boston Post Road and Sound Beach Avenue. So picture that, uh, if I may cut in here to the story. That would be at the intersection of uh, Sound Beach Avenue and, of course, uh, uh, East Putnam Avenue. And, of course, the um, dominating feature of the landscape there is um, uh, the bridge uh, over uh, Sound Beach Avenue of uh, the Connecticut Turnpike, I-95. So um, I'm trying to locate more information about Arbor Heath, but let's move on. Maybe you will get some clues and you can share that with me. 
A special interest is centered in this building development not only because it will relieve a serious housing shortage, but because it is a non-speculative real estate proposition, the outgrowth of an idea of Douglas C. McMurty, president of the Arbor Press, for the formation of a colony of homes for the members of the staff of his printing plant. The little city is in the process of formation on this 100-acre site. Houses of four types are being constructed, ranging in price from $7,000 to $20,000. Great emphasis is placed on making Arbor Heath a distinctive residential colony, and there will be no two houses exactly alike in exterior appearance on the whole property. As architects, builders, and planners, there have been engaged firms of the highest reputation. Messrs. McKim, Mead, and White are the architects. Mr. C.N. Lowry of New York Landscape Architects and Town Planner and the Hegeman Harris Company are the general building contractors. The sales representative of the Arbor Heath Building Development is Leslie F. Smith of Stamford, Connecticut. Um, uh, going back to um, Douglas McMurty of the Arbor Press, um, I did a little bit of research on him, and I found out that apparently that same year, that would be 1920, he was having some financial difficulties uh, or financial challenges, whatever the case may be. And he ended up selling his press to uh, a company that we know very, very well here in Greenwich. Um, the buildings where it was uh, located um, still exist today, and that would be Condonast. Of course, those of you that um, either drive towards Stamford or coming from Stamford um, into, uh, into Greenwich have seen those uh, large monument stones on either side of um, the uh, East Putnam Avenue or the Boston Post Road uh, marking um, the Condé Nast uh, Press uh, as it existed in the area and the names of um, its various publications. Um, and so that might have been how uh, that got started. But if you have any information uh, that you would like to share with me, I'm sure that among our um, or old-timers uh, in the um, Riverside, Old Greenwich area in particular. You might have some knowledge of this, maybe even records. Who knows? Please contact me. I'd love to hear from you at GreenwichAtownForAllSeasons at gmail.com. That's GreenwichAtownForAllSeasons at gmail.com. Thank you. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank you very much for tuning in to today's 19th of August 2022 episode of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast hosted by me. I'm Jeffrey Bingham Mead, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, coming to you from Peter Alexander's boat just off of the placid shores of Great Captain's Island in the waters of Long Island Sound. This has really been this has really been a beautiful day today. Um, I, I, I don't remember the last time I've um, experienced anything like it, but I'll take it just the same. And I'm looking over at the boats around us and everybody is just having a wonderful time. It is the dog days of August after all, and um, a great time to just relax and um, take it all in. Founded on July 18, 1640, Greenwich, Connecticut is one of America's most interesting and extraordinary communities, which means that you and your Greenwich stories are part of our history, and we have lots to share with you, and so we're glad to, to have you as part of this extraordinary community that we call home. 
Before I forget, of course, I want to thank my good friend here, Mr. Jim O'Brien. I believe he's with the William Ravis uh, Real Estate Group in Old Greenwich. He's a local realtor and he treated us to shrimp sushi today. Thank you so much. Um, you know, because I live in Hawaii uh, quite a bit of the time, you know, we do this quite often. And so um, it's like being back home over there. So uh, thank you very much for that, Jim. Deeply appreciated. My friends, I want to remind you all that the Greenwich Town for All Season Show podcast is made possible by, of course, Peter F. Alexander, the owner of this boat. He's also a landscape architect um, and the principal of Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, our good friend, Mr. Kevin M. J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management and listeners like you everywhere. Again, you know, you can always contact me at Greenwich and Town for All Seasons at gmail.com. You can also walk up to me and say hi. <laughs> you can do that if you want to, seriously. Also, you can learn more about the show and listen to past shows. There's no paywall, and all you have to do is go to Greenwich and Town for All Seasons.blogspot.com. I'm on Facebook and Twitter. Lots of Greenwich groups up there. We're a little bit over time, so I don't have time to go through them all today, but I just want to mention that we are on Facebook and, um, and you know, you can connect there as well. Our next show is going to be on Friday the 26th. I don't think that we'll be out on the boat, but you never know. We'll see what happens. It's just that time of the year, and um, we don't want to, uh, well, I don't know. Anyway, we, we don't want to jinx it or anything, but let's just say that you never know where I'm going to be. But in any case, I want to thank you all very much for your um, interest in the history of Greenwich, Connecticut, and also for supporting this show. We are very, very grateful for that. So again, I'm going to see you next Friday. Please, by all means, enjoy your weekend and the coming week ahead. Take good care now. Bye-bye. Thank you.